Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of violence and murder that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Late in the day on February 1st, 1891, a horse-drawn carriage made its way north to Midtown Manhattan. Cynthia Potts and Carlisle Harris sat in silence during the ride. Cynthia was too grief-stricken to talk. Carlisle had just informed her that her daughter, Helen Potts, was dead. Cynthia thought about how Helen had died before she and Carlisle got the chance to celebrate their marriage openly with friends and family. The thought weighed heavily on Cynthia. She tried to discuss it with her son-in-law. Now that my dear girl is gone, it must all come out. She must be buried under your name, Helen Harris. That is out of the question. But she is your wife. You can't deny it anymore. I can and I shall. What good will come of it? Helen is beyond help now. Why should she drag me down with her? (laughs) Devastated, Cynthia dropped the subject. There seemed to be no point in trying to convince him. But as she stared out the carriage window, a fresh wave of fear and dread washed over her. It was clear that Carlyle wanted to pretend like his relationship with Helen had never happened. He was desperate to erase all traces of her. Cynthia turned to study Carlyle's face, and she wondered just how far he was willing to go to escape his marriage to Helen Potts. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solve Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solve Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on the murder of Helen Potts. Last week, we talked about how a young medical student, Carlisle Harris, courted 18-year-old Helen and convinced her to marry him in secret. He soon grew tired of his wife, but not before impregnating her and performing an abortion that nearly took her life. This week, we'll discuss what happened after Helen suddenly died of morphine poisoning. After an initial lag in the investigation, journalists latched on to the story and turned it into one of the most sensationalized cases of the decade. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. At around 2 o'clock p.m. on February 1st, 1891, Deputy Coroner Albert Weston made his way to the Comstock School, a finishing school in Midtown Manhattan. He was there to examine the body of a student, 19-year-old Helen Potts. He also conferred with the doctors that had tried to save Helen's life. They were in agreement that Helen had died of morphine poisoning. Before concluding his visit, Weston spoke to someone else who had been present for Helen's death, 22-year-old medical student Carlisle Harris. Carlisle, who called himself a friend of Helen's family, had prescribed her the morphine. He was adamant that the dosage had been too low to cause an overdose. When he gave the pillbox to Helen, he had even withheld two of the six capsules to ensure that she wouldn't have access to a lethal amount. Deputy Coroner Weston was baffled at how Helen could have been poisoned by such a seemingly small dose of morphine. But later that evening, he spoke with Helen's mother, Cynthia Potts. Her statements raised even more questions about the nature of Helen's death. (laughs) It is a terrible tragedy. She was under such strain, starting at a new school, learning so many new things. She hardly slept. But surely you don't think insomnia killed her? Not alone, but she had heart troubles her whole life. She was afflicted with scarlet fever as a girl. She was never the same after. Mrs. Potts, I'm operating under the belief that she was poisoned. Oh, no. It cannot be anything so terrible. Who would do a thing like that? That's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of. No, it was her heart that killed her. My Poor, sweet girl. (laughs) But in reality, there was nothing wrong with Helen's heart. It was a lie to protect Helen, and one that Carlyle also suggested to the coroner. Cynthia knew that if her daughter's death was ruled suspicious, the medical examiner would have to perform an autopsy. Then they would discover that Helen had undergone an abortion. Even so... The coroner's office still wasn't ready to declare Helen's death an accident. After questioning Cynthia, Weston reported back to his boss, Coroner Louis Schultz. Schultz took over the investigation, but he made a series of mistakes that would seriously jeopardize their case. First, he failed to contact the police to assist him. At that time, rivalries often existed between the police department, the district attorney's office, and the coroner's office. All of these agencies played a role in solving homicides, but the first to arrive at the scene often tried to monopolize the investigation. 
The doctors who attended Helen at her death made the first mistake by only calling the coroner and not the police. When the case fell into Schultz's hands, he thought he could handle it on his own, but he immediately proved that he was out of his depth. Shortly after reviewing the evidence, Schultz lost the prescription pill box that had contained the capsules of morphine. With that, the only piece of hard evidence was gone. He also allowed Helen's body to be returned to her family without pressing for an autopsy. On February 4th, Helen's family held a funeral for the young woman. At the ceremony, Helen's father, George, was convinced that he saw Helen move. He refused to allow the burial to proceed. I saw it! Her hand twitched just so! Sir, grief can affect us very powerfully. Stand aside! I won't let her go into the ground! Sir, she has already been embalmed. What you say is impossible. I won't let you take her! Not until I'm certain she's gone! I understand, sir. George waited another three days, guarding the body, hoping she might wake up. On February 7th, he finally conceded that she was dead and allowed the burial to take place. Carlisle Harris did not attend the services, nor did he allow her to be buried under his name. He did visit Helen's mother a few days after the funeral... However, he wasn't there to pay his condolences. Ma'am? What are you doing here, Carlisle? Do you recall, some months ago, I gave you a copy of our marriage certificate? Yes, I recall that appalling document. I'd like it back. What on earth for? You wish to destroy it like you destroyed the original? We've spoken about this before, madam. There's no good in our marriage coming out. It might cause great harm to me if anyone discovered it. There are worse things that might come out about you, Carlyle. What do you suspect I've done? I suspect a great many things. It is only out of respect for Helen that I've stayed silent. You can't believe I'm so wretched. What can I do to convince you otherwise? Nothing, Carlyle. There is a grave between us now. It cannot be crossed. Please, madam. What would you have me do? I think you should leave this city. I've spoken with your mother about it and told her you should go west. You've caused enough grief here. Why should I do that? I'm nearly done with my education. I've worked hard to get here and I see no reason to let you run me off just because you couldn't control your daughter. Now, will you hand over the marriage certificate? I will not. Carlyle worried that his reputation would suffer if his secret marriage came out, but he had a more pressing concern. The coroner's office still hadn't made an official ruling about Helen's death. Schultz pestered Carlyle to turn over the two pills he'd kept from Helen when he filled the prescription. Carlyle turned one of the capsules in, but claimed to have lost the other. An analysis of the pill revealed that it contained a normal, non-lethal dose of morphine, making it unlikely that the pharmacist had made an error in preparing the prescription. Towards the end of February, a few weeks after Helen's death, Schultz presented all of the evidence to a coroner's jury. 
The jury concluded that Helen had died of morphine poisoning. However, they couldn't make a conclusive determination on whether her death was an accident or a homicide, especially since her mother continued to insist that Helen had chronic health problems that may have caused her death, and they had not done an autopsy. After the coroner's inquest, the district attorney's office was notified about the case. But based on the information gathered, the district attorney decided there wasn't enough evidence to pursue any criminal charges. But while the authorities seemed indifferent about Helen's death, journalists were all too eager to discuss the case. The tragic death of a beautiful young woman was compelling enough. Reporters were even more intrigued by rumors of her secret love affair with a gambling playboy, Carlisle Harris. One dogged reporter named Dilworth Choate took a particular interest in the story. Choate wrote for the New York Evening World, a paper known for its sensationalist style of reporting. Choate had a hunch that there was more to the Helen Potts story, and he was prepared to keep digging until he found the answers. Up next... Carlisle's lecherous past becomes a front-page story. Hi, listeners. Here's a show I think you'll enjoy. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be. Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. In Our Love Story, the new Spotify original from ParCast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And now, back to Solved Murders. By March of 1891... Investigators had already moved on from Helen Potts' murder case. The police had been left out of the process from the beginning, the coroner's office failed to find evidence of foul play, and the district attorney's office found no probable cause to pursue murder charges. Even so, New York Evening World reporter Dilworth Choate felt the story deserved a closer look. He went to work, trying to uncover as much evidence as he could find. Choate learned that some of the faculty at Carlisle's medical school were discussing the possibility of expelling him. The effort was led by one of Carlisle's professors, Dr. George Peabody. 
Even though Carlyle hadn't yet been implicated in a crime, Dr. Peabody was appalled by the young man's behavior. He thought Carlyle had been extremely foolish to prescribe Helen morphine for insomnia and headaches in the first place. And it was even worse given that he was still a student. Dr. Peabody took his concerns to the president of the school, Dr. James W. McLean. He has been giving out prescriptions. He has no right. He is not a physician yet. Do you think that's enough to expel him? A woman died after accepting his treatment. I believe the family of the dead woman has much to say about it. We shall see. I'll call them right away. As Dr. McLean weighed whether to expel Carlisle, he contacted Cynthia Potts to ask her for more information. Cynthia agreed to tell the doctor everything she knew about Carlisle Harris. She trusted that the medical school officials would only use her statement to decide whether to expel Carlisle. She never considered that anyone else might read it. Cynthia, along with Helen's uncle, Dr. Treverton, submitted affidavits to the medical school faculty, explaining Helen's secret marriage, her pregnancy, and the botched abortion performed by Carlisle. Dr. McLean was horrified by these revelations. In his opinion, Carlisle Harris deserved a punishment even worse than expulsion. He believed the young man should be arrested. Against the Potts family's wishes, he sent the affidavits to the district attorney's office. After reviewing these lurid details, someone, likely an employee at the DA's office, sent copies to journalist Dilworth Choate. The next day, Choate went to visit Carlisle Harris to hear his side of the story. You admit that you were married. Yes, we were in love. You tried to hide it. I was only trying to protect us both. But you didn't protect her. She's dead, isn't she? Not through any fault of mine. Whose fault, then? I'm sorry to say, it must have been Helen's. I gave her four capsules of morphine. She must have taken them all at once. Carlyle insisted on his innocence, but that didn't stop the New York Evening World from printing a spread about Carlyle's seedy past a few days later. Carlyle was deeply shaken by the negative press. Although prosecutors had already declined to press charges, Carlyle worried that the bad coverage might influence them to rethink their decision, so he paid a visit to the district attorney's office in person, hoping to clear his name and get ahead of the news. He met with D.A. Delancey Nickel. Every rag in the city has been writing about me, or is about to begin writing. It will be a great blow to my reputation. I don't doubt it. But why are you coming to me? I wanted to make sure that this journalism won't change your opinion of me. I hadn't formed an opinion yet. I'm relieved to hear it. I hope you don't plan on listening to what those vultures say about me. No. I like to reach my own conclusions about the measure of a man. This meeting has been most instructive. Carlisle Harris had hoped his charm and good manners would convince the DA of his innocence. Instead, Nickel was put off by the young man's brash confidence. Instead of staying quiet and letting the rumors die down, Carlisle kept drawing attention to himself, adding fuel to the fire. After Carlisle left... Nickel told another attorney, There is no doubt in my mind that Harris is a guilty man. Nickel decided to reopen the investigation into Helen's death. 
He turned the case over to District Attorneys Francis Wellman and Charles Sims. They quickly ordered the exhumation of Helen Potts' body. The coroner's office had failed to perform an autopsy at the time of her death. The attorneys decided it was time to correct that mistake. On March 25, 1891, Helen's body was removed from her tomb. The autopsy discovered that Helen had no heart issues. She was perfectly healthy prior to death, despite the claims of her mother. Further analysis revealed that she had likely ingested a dose of between three and five grains of morphine prior to death, much higher than the prescription had accounted for. And there was no quinine in her system, which was a stated ingredient of the medication. It was clear that someone had tampered with Helen's pills. Investigators were now all the more certain that her death was no accident. When the district attorney's office presented this new evidence in front of a grand jury, they issued a warrant for Carlisle's arrest. Two detectives quickly went out in search of Carlisle Harris. When Carlisle didn't turn up at home, police went to his lawyer's office. There, they found a young man fitting Carlisle's description. He refused to identify himself, but the officers still arrested him. They dragged the young man to a courtroom for a preliminary custody hearing. When they got there, they made an astonishing discovery. Young man, what do you have to say about this warrant for your arrest? I'm not surprised by any of it. Carlisle Harris is a scoundrel. Nobody knows that better than I do. But you have the wrong man. Explain yourself. Carlisle is my brother. My name is McCready Harris. The police and district attorney were at a loss. The group spent several minutes arguing before the judge about the young man's identity. They were still trying to settle the dispute when a message came in from the district attorney's office. Carlisle Harris had turned himself in. McCready Harris was released and Carlisle was brought into custody. He was sent to the Manhattan Detention Center, known as the Tombs, to await his trial. Journalists continued to report breathlessly on every detail of the story, from Helen's secret marriage to her tragic end. The news coverage devastated the Potts family. Helen's mother, Cynthia, had worked so hard to keep the story from coming to light. She had even covered for Carlisle, drawing suspicion away from him by inventing Helen's heart condition. She had gone so far, all to protect her daughter's name. Now there was nothing left to protect, which meant for Cynthia Potts, the time had come to finally speak up. Coming up, Carlisle Harris stands trial for murder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. 
The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Now back to the story. In March of 1891, Carlisle Harris was arrested for the murder of his secret wife, Helen Potts. The 22-year-old pled not guilty to the crime. For over nine months, he had nothing to do but await his trial, which was eventually set for January of 1892. In the meantime, although Carlisle adamantly denied any involvement in Helen's death, the negative press continued. Despite his vocal cries of innocence, his past actions spoke louder. Journalists eagerly covered every detail of his depravity against Helen. The taboo subjects of secret love, pregnancy, abortion, and murder made for thrilling reading. The interviews given by Helen's grief-stricken mother were among the most compelling. What do you have to say about Carlisle's arrest, Mrs. Potts? I only say that Helen deserved none of this. Her only fault was that she placed her love and trust in an unworthy man. It was my own blindness that I allowed it to happen. But now I see Carlisle for what he is. We all see who that man is. Cynthia was one of the few people privy to Helen's heartbreak after Carlisle impregnated and then abandoned her. Since the story had all come out, Cynthia had nothing left to lose in repeating the truth. She set about making sure that everyone knew what a scoundrel Carlisle Harris was. She even sent a 25-page letter to the prosecutors in the case, describing Carlisle as a serial manipulator of young women. By the time the trial began on January 14, 1892, Carlisle Harris had been unequivocally denounced across America. Crowds watched the case with excitement, thrilled for the chance to see him face justice. In his opening statement, Prosecutor Francis Wellman began by telling the court that he desired to give Carlisle Harris a fair trial. Then he changed his tone. He did everything he could to emphasize Carlisle's detestable public image. Think of the kind of man who resorts to poison. This is not a work of inflamed passions. This is not a man who strikes out in anger. This is a cold, cunning act. Think of the calculating nature of the kind of a man who would do such a thing. This is the type of defendant you see before you, gentlemen, and the facts will prove it so. The New York Herald called it the greatest opening statement of Wellman's career. He had captivated the jury with his story of a beautiful young woman led astray by a devious coward. After his initial remarks, he launched into his examination of the witnesses. Dr. Fowler, who had attended to Helen in her final moments, recounted the battle to save her life. Cynthia Potts retold the story of Helen's disastrous marriage to Carlisle. Several physicians were brought in as experts to confirm that morphine poisoning was the likely cause of death. The evidence was circumstantial, but convincing. At that point, it was almost impossible for Carlisle to rehabilitate his image with the jury. His defense attorney, William Travers Jerome, 
didn't spend much time trying to convince anyone of his client's good character. Instead, he did his best to paint Carlyle's behavior as youthful indiscretions before quickly moving on to other arguments. The defense contended that there was no absolute proof that morphine had killed Helen. The attorney hammered the fact that the coroner's office had waited more than a month to even conduct an autopsy. There was a chance that she could have died from some other illness. Carlyle hoped this chance would be enough to instill a reasonable doubt in the jury. To help bolster his case, the defense produced an expert witness, Dr. Horatio Wood, to discuss other possible causes of death. He seemed knowledgeable at first, until the prosecution cross-examined him. You're an esteemed physician, Dr. Wood. How did you draw your conclusions? I've read many books on the subject. Oh, many books. Impressive. And how many patients have you actually diagnosed with morphine poisoning? Uh, I don't see the relevance. You don't see the relevance? You've been called to give expert testimony on whether a young woman died of morphine poisoning. Shouldn't you be intimately familiar with the effects? Well, I... uh... How many patients have you diagnosed with morphine poisoning in the last decade, Dr. Wood? I believe... uh, One. One patient. One patient in the last ten years, is that right? Uh, Yes, that's correct. Wait, uh, actually, that case was 15 years ago. Well, let us go back further. How many opium patients have you diagnosed in the last 20 years? It could be two or three. Is it two or is it three? I think three. You've had a long and illustrious career. Do you honestly believe that the diagnosis of three patients in 20 years grants you the experience to call yourself an expert in morphine poisoning? I... No further questions. Dr. Wood's testimony was a disaster for the defense, so much so that Carlyle's attorney, William Jerome, collapsed in tears while questioning the next witness. The judge allowed the court to adjourn early for the weekend. Jerome's breakdown became its own mini-spectacle within the media circus surrounding the trial. For the next few days, reporters congregated around Jerome's house to hypothesize about the lawyer's health and well-being. There he is! Thank you all for your concern. I assure you, I am simply overworked. I shall be right again with a good meal and a few days rest. Do you fear for the fate of your client? No more questions, gentlemen. I will see you all on Monday. Until then... I plan to put this case entirely out of my mind. By Monday, Jerome was back in court, ready to proceed with the case, but the damage had been done. After a three-week trial, the attorneys made their closing arguments. On February 2nd, 1892, a day after the anniversary of Helen's tragic death, the jury returned after little more than an hour of deliberation. They found Carlisle Harris guilty of first-degree murder. The following week, the judge sentenced Carlisle to death. Upon hearing the news, Helen's father told reporters, I hope I may be allowed to touch the button of the electrical machine that kills the man that murdered my daughter. 
I shall make application to the authorities for the privilege. Carlyle immediately appealed the case. He fired his old attorneys and hired new ones, believing that his counsel had bungled the case. But by March 1893, his appeal was rejected. Before this happened and his execution could be scheduled, Carlyle had pursued one last ditch effort to save his own life. His only recourse was to smear the name of his dead wife. In February of 1893, Carlyle's attorneys moved for yet another trial, claiming they had discovered new evidence that Helen was a drug addict. Carlyle wanted to make a case that if Helen had died of morphine poisoning, it must have been self-administered. Carlyle's bombshell created another new round of sensationalist headlines as reporters feverishly speculated on Helen's health and habits. To support his allegation, Carlyle submitted several affidavits from young women claiming to be Helen's friends. These individuals insinuated that Helen used to carry around a pillbox wherever she went. They claimed that she was constantly drowsy and seemed as if she were under the influence of something. One man, a druggist clerk in Helen's hometown of Asbury, New Jersey, claimed he'd sold her morphine on dozens of occasions. These assertions were strongly countered by scores of Helen's friends and family. Those who knew her best adamantly denied that she regularly used morphine. It was thought by many that Carlyle had used family money to buy the testimony of Helen's accusers. The judge was not swayed by this new evidence. Carlyle's request for a new trial was denied. Despite Carlyle's best efforts to paint himself as a wrongly accused man, the most likely explanation remained that he had killed Helen Potts. He was tired of their attachment. He had no desire to publicly formalize their marriage. And so, he looked for an opportunity to get rid of her once and for all. He might not have been thinking of anything sinister when Helen complained of headaches in early January of 1891. But a few weeks later, a plot likely formed in Carlyle's mind as he listened to a medical school lecture led by Dr. George Peabody. The topic was morphine. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Today's lecture is on morphine. Its uses in medicine and its poisonous effects in large doses. I have brought samples of the drug for your examination. You may take this bottle and pass it around the room. Carefully now. When Dr. Peabody allowed students to examine the medicine, Carlyle likely pocketed a strong dose of morphine during the demonstration. The next time Helen mentioned her headaches, Carlyle jumped at the chance to treat her. He wrote her a prescription for six pills, each one containing about four grains of quinine and a sixth of a grain of morphine. On January 20th, Carlyle filled the prescription at the local drugstore, but before handing the pillbox over to Helen, he most likely opened one of the capsules and shook out the quinine. He then filled the empty capsule with a lethal dose of morphine. The next time he saw Helen, he handed off the pillbox. He made sure to take out two of the pills he hadn't tampered with. It would give him plausible deniability later. Here you are, my dear. This should fix you right up. I promise. Only four? Shouldn't there be six pills? 
Yes, but I don't think it's safe for you to be in possession of so much morphine. I'd hate to put you at any risk. Oh, Carl, you're so very considerate of me. Of course, my darling. Now, this should be more than enough to cure those dreadful headaches of yours. That will be a relief. Be sure to take one each night. Don't stop until you finish the pillbox. Do you understand? I'll do just as you say. That's my girl. After giving Helen the morphine, Carlisle left town. He took a week-long vacation to Old Point Comfort in Virginia. Perhaps guilt kept him away. He didn't want to be anywhere near Helen when she took the poison. However, a day or so after taking the first two pills, Helen wrote to Carlisle, complaining that they made her feel sick and didn't help her headaches. She wanted to stop taking them, but Carlisle wrote back, instructing her to continue. Helen obeyed. On another night, Helen took the regular dose of morphine. She still didn't like the way it made her feel, but she suffered no serious effects. On January 31st, 1891, Carlisle had returned from his trip. They planned to see each other that afternoon. Helen's mother visited her at the Comstock School that day. Helen mentioned the pills to her mother during their visit and shook the bottle to show her that she had only one left. Here is the treatment Carlisle has suggested. I've already taken three doses and I've had no improvement. Truthfully, it makes me feel awful. Oh, your father always feels poorly after taking quinine, but I'm sure it will eventually do you some good. Yes, that's what Carlisle says. He's coming back to the city today. Let's go meet him at the ferry. Oh, yes, dear. When Carlisle returned, he and Helen spent the afternoon together before returning to their respective schools. That night, Helen took the fourth and final pill. Oh, these wretched pills. I suppose it is for the best. It was the poison dose. Helen fell ill just before midnight. Doctors were called to her bedside. They worked tirelessly through the night. Despite their efforts, Helen Potts died early the next morning. None of Carlyle's later protests could change the fact that he was the one who had prescribed her the morphine. He had the opportunity to tamper with the dose. He had expressed a wish to be free of their marriage. He got what he wanted. And on May 8, 1893, he paid for it. Late that morning, a small crowd of witnesses and reporters gathered in the execution room of Sing Sing Prison. Moments later, Carlisle was led into the room to be seated in the electric chair. He remained calm in his final moments, making one final declaration of innocence. Then he sat back and waited for the signal. As the switch was flipped, 1,760 volts of electricity passed through his body for just under a minute. Moments later, Carlisle was pronounced dead. The saga of Helen Potts and Carlisle Harris had captivated the country for over two years, but with Carlisle's execution, it came to an abrupt end. Carlisle was buried in a rural cemetery in upstate New York. His mother, still believing him to be innocent, had his gravestone engraved with the phrase, 
murdered by 12 men, if the jury had only known. Carlyle had spent years indulging two sides of himself. Sometimes he presented himself as a philandering ladies' man who only cared about pleasure. On other occasions, he held himself out to be a sophisticated intellectual, destined for upper-class respectability. In the end, none of these traits defined him. When he went to his grave, the world only saw him as a murderer. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. For more information on the case, we found the book Six Capsules, The Gilded Age Murder of Helen Potts by George R. Deakle Sr. Extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Solved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Joe Hernandez, K.G. Tang, Rebecca Thomas, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from ParCast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.